Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that the, uh, the entrance of your word would bring the light we so desperately need. Lord, even as your children, even as uh, believers filled with the Holy Spirit of God, sometimes uh, we take our eyes off of heaven, Lord, we center them on uh, the things here of the earth, we, our own lives, our own wisdom, and Lord, uh, that's when we invite problems in our lives, and so we want to keep our eyes fixed on heaven firmly. Lord, we want to run our race well, Lord, we don't want to get sidetracked uh, this way or that way. Uh, and Lord, we do believe that by coming together, gathering this way, lifting up your name, Lord, settle, settling our hearts once afresh uh, on heaven, on you, and then sitting under your holy word, Lord, you do a good and a refining work within us. And so once more, we're just asking, just even in the simplicity of gathering to sit and listen and hear, Lord, that you would minister eternal truths. And we pray this today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you weren't with us or you were and you've forgotten, the Apostle Paul finished up chapter 3 with this wonderful statement of truth. Uh, it was sort of like this, uh, this hymn of faith, this doxology or something of faith. And so I want to go back and, and show you that. Look again at verse 16 of the previous chapter. It says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And there had been those in the Ephesian church there that had strayed away from the reality of those things. That's really all, that is all about Jesus. It's about his coming, it's about what he came to do, die on a cross, it's about his resurrection, it's about how the, t the angels testified to who he was and that God was pleased with them, it's about how he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit of God, how he ascended into heaven, was received into heaven, thus God acknowledging. It's all about the work of the person of Jesus Christ, and Paul there calls that the mystery of godliness. Now, as we come to chapter 4, we're going to see that there were other people that were introducing other forms of godliness. No, 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 it's not about that. You want to be godly, here's what you need to do. And they began to teach that, and people began to go after that and in that direction. And Paul says, look, if I can't make it there in time, I'm over here in Macedonia, I'm trying to get to you there in Ephesus as quickly as I can, but if I can't get there, you know what to do. Go ahead and start without me. Look again at chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you, but I... And writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You can get started without me. And as we come now to chapter 4, notice how it begins. It begins in some versions, depending on what you're reading, either with the word now or the word but. I can't imagine you have any other word than those two. The word now or the word but. And in both instances, those are this transition is a contrasting shift now de demonstrates that, but demonstrates that. And so he is transitioning from this is the glorious truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus um, did, how God the Father accepted what he did, and now we're transitioning, and he says now, but the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And they will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits 
and the teachings of demons, who through the excuse me, through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. He transitions from the glorious truth of the ending of chapter 3 and he says now or but, the, the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. That in latter times some will depart from those truths of chapter 3 verse 16. Now, latter times, that's very similar to the phrase we often hear, the last days. People will say that, you know, we're living in the last days, and I believe we are living in the last days. Other parts of the scripture, it, it speaks of the last days. For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, talks about that. Paul uses that phrase. Here, however, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he uses a slightly different phrase, similar Last days, here he uses the phrase in latter times. And there is a difference. When he talks about the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's referring to the close of this present age in which we live, the close of the church age. He's referring to things like, that you've probably heard, the rapture of the church, or the rise of the Antichrist, or the great tribulation or the triumphant return of Christ. All of those are wrapped up in what Paul means when he uses the phrase, the last days. Here, though, that's not what Paul's referring to. So it's a similar term, latter times, but he's referring to something different. Here, he is simply referring to times that are future from when he sat and wrote that. He, that's all he's talking about, is after I'm gone, these things are going to happen in latter times, he says. And he's, so therefore, he's referring to the decades and the centuries following his life here on the earth and the millennia, our time that we're living in. These are latter times from when the Apostle Paul wrote. And so if we are living in those latter times, we should pay special attention to what it is he's writing about. Because Paul says the Spirit expressly says in latter times, these are the things that are going to happen. We're living in those times. He says, now this spirit expressly says. Now, whether Paul received a, uh, like a prophetic word from the Holy Spirit, that certainly could be the case, or Paul is simply saying, the spirit has expressly said these things in past, and we know that he has in what we call the New Testament, and so Jesus, for instance, said these types of things. Some of the other apostles spoke about these types of things. So whether Paul is talking about a sp specific revelation he received or he's just simply saying what we might say is, look, the word of God, it's all over the word of God. One way or the other, what Paul is communicating here is that in latter times, the spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 24, 10. Mark 13:22. Peter wrote that in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3. Jim read earlier, Jude wrote that in Jude 18. The author of the book of Hebrews said the same type of thing in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 10. Clearly, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, 
there will be those that depart from the faith. You remember when we were studying through the book of Ephesians, if you were with us, excuse me, the book of Acts, if you were with us, that as Paul was making, about to make his way back to the land of Israel from the area of the Mediterranean, that he stopped off in one last city and he called the Ephesian elders to himself. He said, look, you guys are about 25 miles away. I'm not going to be able to get there. Come to me. I want to have a meeting before I depart by ship to go back to Jerusalem. And it was then that he warned those Ephesian elders. And this is what Acts 20 tells us. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice that. And from among your own selves will arise. Paul called the five elders, ten elders, twelve elders, whatever it was. He called them to himself. And from among your own selves, some of you will rise up speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. They would depart from the faith. And that departure, whether it had already begun to happen, it was just about to happen, or it was still a little bit into the future, one thing or the other, that departure that had been revealed to the Apostle Paul is now prompting him to write these things to Timothy, where again in verse 1, he says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now this word depart is an important word uh, for us to take notice of this morning. There's another word that uh, is somewhat more, maybe more well known. It's the word apostasy. Maybe you've heard of the word apostasy. This isn't the word that is being used here, but it comes from the same root. They both have the same idea, apostasy, departure, both have the same idea here with. And this word here, depart, it means to remove oneself from the position originally occupied to another place. Departure. To take, move, remove oneself from the, the place originally occupied and to place yourself in a new place altogether. And so with that as our definition, here's what Paul's saying. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will knowingly and purposefully remove themselves from the faith. Again, the leaders will knowingly and purposely remove themselves from the faith, or we might say from the teachings of the faith. Paul chose the words he chose when he wrote very carefully. I don't know if it's because he had an extensive knowledge of the Greek language or the Holy Spirit was kind of taken over from time to time, but Paul was very careful with the words he wrote. And as we dig into the teachings of the Apostle Paul through the epistles, we see how significant it is that he chose this word and not this word. Here he chooses this word departure. And it, it does not refer to sort of this unintentional falling away. It doesn't refer to sort of a misunderstanding with a, the meaning of a doctrine and kind of getting it wrong. What it refers to is the deliberate withdrawal from the faith that was once professed. That's what the word departure means here, which means that the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will deliberately withdraw from the faith that was once professed. And again, we're talking about the teachers. Some of those teachers will deliberately withdraw from the faith that was once 
professed. And the reason why they would do so, Paul goes on to say, or what they will get themselves into, he says, are the teachings of demons, as you see there in verse 1. So he warns Timothy, or maybe he reminds him, probably because uh, Timothy already knew this, so he, it's a reminder of the warning that there were going to be those that would come in, that they would turn away from the, the teachings of the faith, that they once professed, and that they would go after the deceitful doctrines of demons. The ESV uses the, the term, the, the teachings of demons. We're going to talk about what those teachings were in a moment, but first I think it's important to consider just who, again, the some are when he says some will depart. Were these believers? Were they believers that departed from the faith, or were they unbelievers that drew near to the teachings of the faith and then departed from that? Well, Paul isn't, uh, he's not unequivocally clear. So are we talking about they were elders of the church? I have to believe that they probably, you know, passed the test or they faked some people in the process here. But Paul's not unequivocally clear as to tell us whether they were believers that departed or those that drew near to what it looked like to be a believer, but never actually, if you will, cross that line. I'm of the opinion that we're referring to those that drew near to the things of Christ. But as evidenced by their departure from those things, they never actually came to that place of faith. To use Jesus's words, remember that parable he told of the sower that was sowing some seed, Luke chapter 8? that these were those that heard the gospel, but they had no depth of soil for the seed of the gospel to take root, and thus they couldn't bear fruit, including the fruit of salvation. But again, that's my opinion, because Paul's not absolutely clear if we're talking about believers that left or we're talking about people that came close and left. At minimum, though, we know this. Paul is speaking about those individuals that had deliberately withdrawn, I'm quoting, withdrawn from the essential teachings of the Christian faith. And the greatest concern of this is as teachers, they would then lead other people astray with their teaching. You remember the the whisper down the lane game you played when you were a little kid? And you always had that little bratty kid who would purposefully change it, you know, the seventh kid in or whatever, and you're like, what are you... Jimmy, I heard you, you know, this sort of thing. But if you do that whisper down the lane thing, and everybody's being sincere about it here, inevitably people begin to change it a little bit at a time. And the fifth guy changes it a little, and the sixth guy's got no hope because he's only hearing what the fifth guy said. And then the seventh guy and the eighth guy and so on and so forth as you go down the line. So here are these teachers that themselves have deliberately withdrawn from the essential teachings The result has to be they're going to inevitably lead others astray with their teaching as well. Last week I paraphrased former President Reagan in saying, doctrinal truth is never more than one generation away from extinction. And so if these false teachings and these false teachers are not dealt with, the purity of the faith is at risk for the generations that will follow. And so Paul, among other things, says to Timothy, you need to, be, you need to get there and you need to be on your guard about this particular thing. Now, based on Paul's statement, while apostasy shouldn't disappoint us uh, and even sadden us as believers, what it shouldn't do is shock us. We should be disappointed. It's unfortunate. When you see a teacher that you admired, there was a guy I admired when uh, 
I first started coming to the Lord, and he'd pop on TV every now and again because his dad had this uh, national TV show, and every now and again his son would teach. And I was like, I love that guy. He's the best. Well, that guy's off the mark right now. He, he, he's out there right now, unfortunately. And that, that's disappointing. You're like, oh, man, brother, what happened to you? If indeed he was a brother. But it shouldn't surprise us. Because the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, in these five, we're going to look at five verses today. And in these five verses, Paul mentions, if you will, the Spirit's precise prediction of this departure. That's verse 1. He gives the character, characterization of the apostates, you know, what what how it could happen in them. That's uh, the rest of verse 1 and 2. And then he indicates the erroneous nature of their teaching, and that's the remaining verses here. Now, the false teaching is going to center around uh, or be made by these false teachers. If, again, look, or not again, but look down at verse 3. They were uh, teaching the, the forbidding of marriage and the requirement of abstinence from certain foods that Paul will go on to say that God created to be received with thanksgiving. All right, that's the teachings of these false teachers, the forbidding of marriage and the forbidding of certain foods that we'll say. And those are the teaching of demons that Paul referenced in verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demon, demons. These are the teachings that some there in Ephesus had departed from the faith to devote themselves to. So we're not saying that you know, demons are teaching these things and people are sitting listening to them. A human teacher was teaching these things, but they were being influenced by these uh, fallen spirits, these fallen angels, these demonic spirits. Human teachers prompted and deceived by demonic spirits. Now, the Bible talks a lot about demonic spirits. Demonic spirits are those fallen angels that rose up with Satan to rebel against God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14 is uh, a good place where you can go and you can look at that rebellion where Satan, who was initially known by the name of Lucifer, this angel of God, seems like he was a worship leader in heaven, where he rose up in pride. Why is everybody giving all the attention to God? I want some of this attention for myself. And he rose up in pride. And the scripture says that a third of the angelic beings fell with him or rebelled with him. That third are what we commonly refer to as demonic spirits or as demons. And as we see in this passage, at least one of the things that these fallen angels are engaged in at this time of their existence is to deceive men and women and to entice them away from the truth. Now the history of demonic deception, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It goes all the way back to the fall where Satan himself in the form of a serpent began to interact with Eve and says, hath God really said? Begins to deny God's word, begins to add God's word, begins to challenge God's word. And ultimately, as we learned in one of our previous studies in this book, Eve was deceived. And she fell, and she gave to her husband, and he fell as well. Remember, the apostle Peter himself momentarily was led astray by the false doctrine of the evil one. You remember in that instance there where Peter 
he said, no, Lord, it's never, never going to happen. The Lord said, I got to go to Jerusalem, die. Nope, never going to, not going to let it happen. Well, what did uh, Jesus say to him? He said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Even in just an instance there, Peter, with his sincere desire to protect the one he loved, the Lord, was deceived. And Jesus called him out on it. He said, no, this is not about the Lord. This is, about, this is from Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're hindering the work of the Lord. That's rather troubling then, to think that even the keenest of Christians, if we're off our guard, we can become the actual tools of the devil, as in that instance uh, Peter could have been. And so we have these deceitful spirits. Again, not the false teachers, but the evil spirits influencing their false teachers. That tells us that doctrinal error clearly has a superhuman element to it, that it's coming from somewhere. God's Holy Spirit takes people, leads people into a saving truth. These unholy spirits lead them into damning error. And since creation, the earth has been, if you will, the battleground between God and Satan, where God is calling mankind to respond to his word, and Satan is trying to lure the world to follow his lies. And he uses these uh, deceiving spirits to do so. Now, the specific lie that Paul presents here, again, it's in verse 3. And it's the forbidding of marriage and the requiring of abstinence uh, toward certain foods. And these are just two of the many forms of asceticism that some have adopted as the apparent means of godliness. People that call themselves Christian, people that call themselves religious but have nothing to do with Christianity, this idea of withdrawing from the things of this world as a means of being right with God, whatever their God might be. Here, abstain from marriage, abstain from certain foods, but in other instances, abstain from earthly pleasures or any of the other myriad uh, of ideas that people have introduced as the means of earning the favor of God, or alternatively, sometimes you hear, as the means of going deeper in your understanding of God. If you really want to know God, you'll keep yourself from this thing, and you'll keep yourself from that thing. And again, things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul already told us the mystery of godliness. It was a previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 16. And it's not the result of that which we do, or in this case, that which we don't do. Rather, it was the result of the work of Jesus Christ, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, taken up into glory. That's all what he did. It's not what we do or don't do. The mystery of godliness is not what we keep ourselves from. It's the work that he did. And yet, despite Paul's clear teaching on this, there were those under the influence of these deceiving spirits that went on to teach, even today as people continue to teach these things, the denial of oneself, including the extreme denial of oneself, that that's the means of earning the favor of God. The reality is they're nothing but the teachings of demons, and they're designed to deceive. Now, we want to be careful here, I think, because we can look at this and be like, oh, man, those poor teachers, they probably had no idea what was coming, man, and they were just tricked by those demons. Well, the reality is those false teachers were as in, involved in this as, as well. They were deceived, yes, 
but they weren't completely innocent in their adoption of these teachings of, dem of demons. So we can't simply look at this and say, man, those crafty demons, oh my gosh, what if they get me? Because these guys here, notice what Paul writes about them, verse 2, he says, through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared. Teachings of demons coming through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you have the, the spiritual element, but you also have the human agent. And the human agent were individuals that were insincere liars whose consciences were seared. They became the tools of these deceiving spirits. The word translated insincerity here from the Greek is where the word that we get the word hypocrisy from. These guys were hypocrites. The word translated there seared is the one from which we get the word cauterized or like you burn something so that uh, bad things happen. Uh, I don't know what you call it, like a scab of some form, forms and you have no feeling there any longer. And so there may have been a time when these teachers were open to the things of God. There may have been a time where maybe they were even effective teachers of the things of God. But as they denied what they knew to be true, in sincerity, as they denied what they knew to be true, both in their teaching and in their practice, their consciences, which at one time was probably soft and ready to receive from God, but as they kept denying it, they kept hardening it over and over and over, and soon these individuals became insensitive to conviction at all. It's as if their nerve endings of their consciences had been seared, as it were, with a hot iron and had become dead to feeling any longer. And so they're walking away. It begins in the place of hypocrisy. You, look, we look at this. I, this is, I look at this and I see it as a warning as a person that teaches the word of God. And look, if you have kids, you're teaching the word of God. If you're in a Sunday school class, you're teaching the Word of God. If you lead a home group, you're teaching the Word of God. If the people at your job come to you because they know you're the Bible lady or the Bible man, in that instance, you're teaching the Word of God. And every time that we approach that which we're teaching and we are insincere or we, we follow it up with a hypocrisy and a purposeful hypocrisy, or as the word we used earlier, there's a deliberate walking away. I know it says this, but I'm going to do this or I know it says this, but I'm going to say this. Each time we do that, we run the risk of hardening our hearts, of searing our hearts. It's like putting an iron on it just a little. You do that every day for a period of time. It's going to have a lasting impact here. And these teachers now were immune to feeling anything with their heart. Their teaching was not according to the truth of God's word because they've gone astray. And so whether we are teachers of God's word or we are just people that want to follow God's word, we need to be very, very careful with the violation of our consciences. If our conscience is pricking us, even if every other believer we know it's not pricking them on that issue, if God is pricking you on that issue, you need to respond. We want to continually have soft consciences toward what it is that God might be speaking to our hearts. A person's conscience can be hardened or deadened, and that happens when we ignore it. And so whenever we affirm with our lips something that we deny in our lives, we harden our consciences just a little more. 
And whenever we teach something we know to be false, our consciences are sealed just a little bit further. And soon that hypocrisy and those lies which we thought we controlled, they control us. And they've changed us. And these teachers were no longer the persons they once used to be. And God's work in our lives is no longer as effective or in their lives as it once used to be. Now here's a, a thing that really interests me about this passage. Look at the two examples that Paul gives. Now those are the examples that they were dealing with. And he's not just making them up out of nowhere. That's what they were dealing with. And that's the ones he gives. And, I'm, and they're not the only doctrines in the history of the world uh, and in our day that demons are using to deceive and lead people astray. But in Ephesus, they were the two doctrines. You know, if you want to be really spiritual, you can't get married and you can't eat these certain foods here. That's how you really win the favor of God. What's interesting to me about those two examples is at first glance, they're not that horribly wicked, are they? Oh, hey, you don't want to get married, don't get married. You know, it's not like he's saying that the doctrines of demons is to snatch up children and kill them or something. That's horrible. Oh my gosh, that's what you would expect from a demon here. They're just saying, don't get married and don't eat certain foods. And it doesn't seem like it's that significant, right? Are you with me on this? You see where I'm going with this? And what I'm seeing here is, I, and I'm not the only guy in the whole world that has seen this, but what I, what I see here is the devil gets that small little foothold. If he comes in and he says here, here's what I want you to do. I want you all to go out here and kill somebody or whatever. Like, that's a lie. But if he just says something like, look, if you really want to be godly, you really want to devote yourself to God and his people, well, then you would put aside marriage and you would give yourself wholeheartedly to the bride, the church. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable. And that's how you'll be really holy. Whoa, whoa. I thought he made me really holy. I thought his righteousness became my righteousness. Well, well, yeah, well yeah, of course, of course, of course. No, it's a doctrine of demons. And it starts with those little tiny things which you can kind of, uh, well, me, I, it doesn't sound right, but I guess it could be. And it gets a foothold in you and then another one and another one and another one and pretty much, pretty soon you're in the grips of these teachings. And Paul here, you see, he takes them to task for teaching things, and the reason that he does so is not, is not so much because abstaining from marriage and certain foods is this horribly bad thing, but because the reason they were being told to do so was an, as an alternative means to godliness that stood apart from the person and the work of Christ. These teachers were teaching that abstaining from marriage and certain foods is what would win them God's favor, not the perfect sacrifice of his son in their place. And so you have these false teachers, they're teaching, you follow a list of man-made rules and you'll be justified in God's sight. Well, that's legalism. And it's legalistic piety. And it's a mark of those that have departed from the purity of the faith. They were introducing a means to personal holiness same word, godliness, from chapter 3, verse 16. They were introducing a means to personal godliness that could come as a result of self-denying asceticism. You'd be more holy if you don't get married, more holy if you don't eat these things. Now, Paul was very, very clear about that teaching in another place, and it'll help us to take a look at it, and how it was such a false and dangerous teaching. Colossians chapter 2 
He wrote about seven or eight verses on it. He said this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, like keeping them. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, the head's Jesus, for, uh, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all these things that perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Is it clear Paul doesn't agree with that teaching? Yeah, not at all. Because as believers, we are complete in Christ. And we do not need to practice physical self-denial to gain salvation from sin or to gain righteousness before God. Now look, if you want to abstain from something, abstain from those things that Paul clearly, or the writers in the scripture clearly tell us to abstain from. You're, you know, you're all in for abstaining. Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we are to abstain from sexual morality. Chase after that if you want to you know, abstain and deny yourself of something. Chase, uh, abstain from selfishness, greed, gossip. Abstain from those things. Not to win God's favor, but because we have already obtained his favor. He's given us a new spirit. Walk in it. That's very, very different, though, from what these guys are teaching. And again, we might expect the Apostle Paul to, to follow up his comments about the doctrines of demons with some horrible things like let's kill children or let's deny the Trinity. That would be a big one, wouldn't it? Or Jesus' deity. We, you know, let's deny that or something like that. Instead, just very subtly, Satan attempts to deceive by just gaining a small little foothold. Something that just doesn't sound right, but you know, I just can't put my finger on it. And soon you adopt it and you walk in it and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. These minor teachings. The other thing about this is, these minor teachings, both of them contain an element of truth found in the scriptures. So for instance, what I mean is, Paul, he talked about his singleness. It seems as if Paul had one point been married to be a rabbi in the Sanhedrin. That was an expectation. But in his later life, in his later years as he came to Christ, either his wife had left him or she had passed or whatever it might be, and Paul was essentially living as this single individual. And Paul comments on that, and he sort of commends like, you know, it actually works out for me. I'm much more available. I can go anywhere I need to go, you know, all this stuff. And he says, like, to, to folks, if, if that's what God has called you to, great. You'll be more readily available for ministry, too. In 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks about that. We know that the Bible calls us to the spiritual discipline of fasting, doesn't it? We love that one, yeah. It calls us to that as a discipline that we should be about. It's an important accompaniment to our prayer lives. So there's a, there's a level of truth to this idea of abstaining from certain foods and even maybe abstaining from marriage, there's a level of it. And there are times in the Christian life when physical restraint, when self-denial are necessary. 
The problem is here that this teaching was altogether different because this teaching involved, number one, the intentional denial of things that God had declared to be good. Look at verse 3. Forbid marriage uh, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And then secondly, it declared that abstinence from these things was essential to spiritual growth and godliness, as I've been pointing out. Who needs Jesus anymore? All you got to do is abstain from marriage and certain foods, and you'll be right with God. Well, that teaching destroys the gospel. There's no longer any need for the gospel. And that's why Paul is so strong against it here. It was a teaching that seemed innocent enough and rather innocuous. But as Paul argues, it was a teaching which ultimately would lead to the imperceptible drift from pure belief into what is ultimately not belief at all. And it was a teaching that was contrary to God's word because it was a denial of God's word. And because it was, we can be certain then of its origin. It was from the pit of hell. Anything contrary to scripture can be rightly classified as the deceptive doctrine of devils. Whether the person that's mouthing those words means it or not, whether you know, they're trying to deceive you or not, if it is contrary to God's word and it's coming out, it is part of the doctrine of devils. Rather than be abstained from these things that Paul references here, he says, were to be created by God to be received with thanksgiving. You remember at the end of the creation week, and early in the book of Genesis, how God pronounced everything that he had created was good, Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. It was very good, he says. Now you'll note the only thing that God said was not good was that man was alone. Genesis 2, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then it's not until he brings, he brings to Adam, his wife Eve, that God declares that it is very good. God himself instituted marriage. And he did so before the fall of man. So it's not like, you know, well, we got to do it, you know, this kind of thing. He did it before. He, he instituted marriage before the fall of man. There's nothing unholy about marriage. And when false teachers forbid it, they are attacking what God created. As far as food is concerned, Jesus himself declared that all foods are clean. Now, I'm not talking about McDonald's hamburgers. All right, they may be bad for you or whatever here. But Jesus said this, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods to be clean. You remember in Acts uh, chapter 10, Peter is up on the roof. He's waiting for lunch you know, that's going to be made downstairs, the roof. It's not weird. It's a flat roof. It's like a, a deck up there. And he's up there and he's having a time of prayer. And during that time of prayer, he receives these visions. And the visions are about a blanket, like a picnic blanket of food that is descending down. He's probably hungry. It was lunchtime. And a, a picnic blanket of food that is descending down, but it had all these unclean animals. And he's told in the vision that he should rise up and eat them. And his response is, no way. I'm a good Jew. We don't eat those unclean animals. In other words, don't call unclean what I called clean. Goes away, 
The vision comes back again. Same story goes again. Don't call unclean what I call clean. Happens three times. Finally, Peter goes downstairs and he begins to understand God's telling me not to call unclean what he's calling clean. And so here in the New Testament era, we see that, yeah, there were dietary regulations in the Old Testament. But those dietary regulations in the Old Testament, they were temporary. They served a purpose, among other things, teaching Israel the importance of discernment, to isolate the nation from pagan societies around them. But to reimpose them in the church age, and, and to do so as some way of manufacturing righteousness in our lives, is to miss the mark altogether, and it denies the work of Christ. And ultimately, it dishonors God. So listen, if you want to abstain from marriage, and that's just a decision that you have made in your life, and you know what, I'm, I'm just not going to pursue it, you can do that. It's not like, no, you got to get married or whatever. If you want to abstain from it and, and just pursue singleness, you can do that. And you likely, with Paul, will have more freedom, we'll call it, where you can go wherever you want and not have to worry about how that impacts those that are in your care, or at least that are you know, alongside for the ride with you. But if you do it thinking somehow you're more spiritual than those that won't do it or haven't done it, then you're missing the point. And the same thing with food. If you want to abstain from certain things and adopt a certain diet and all that kind of stuff, you can do that. But if you do that and believe that you are more spiritual because you do it, then this, sorry, this schmo over here that eats anything, not you, Jay, well, then you've missed the point too. None of those things, they're just outward things. Paul says they can be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I think this very simply, among other things, speaks to the importance of giving thanks for the food that God provides, among other things. Now, I don't think you need to, you know, you're in a restaurant and you call the whole restaurant to attention. Everybody, we're going to pray. I know most of you didn't, so I'm going to cover you too. I certainly don't think this means that, you know, if you get some bad food, but you've said a prayer before that you're going to be protected from the bad food. I don't, I don't think that's what it means here. I think what it means is it's having a hard attitude of gratefulness. And so, whereas... Others were saying, like, you can't have these things if you truly want to be godly. The response is, well, then I can have anything because I know that's a lie, and so I can just take anything I want here. I think the response is, God, thank you. Even in the simplest things, like, thank you for this slice of pizza right now. Some of you are judging me, all right? But every now and again, I like a slice of pizza. You know, Lord, I just appreciate you providing. I appreciate this. I appreciate and so on and so forth. I love it in our family from ever since she was a little girl when my daughter would pray, she would be the only one in the house that also prayed for the drinks. So all of us would pray for our food and she and Lord, thank you for the drinks. You know, and I'm like, you know, you're right. I am glad to have something to wash it down with. All right. And so we give thanks. We have this attitude, this heart of thankfulness. The answer is to asceticism. It's not to just take it all in. The answer to it is just to take it in with gratefulness and thankfulness as a provision from God. And so apostasy, the departure from the faith that we began our time with here, it is an ever-present danger in the church. And I think especially now with 
like the ability just to you can watch any teacher you want and you just you can go to their church so to speak and just go right online and get it and you can pipe it right into your home and you can scroll and you can get it just like that without even trying to look for it it's an ever-present danger in the church both the drifting away and the deliberate walking away or wandering away and so as a result, for us as believers, us as a church, us as leaders here, elders, and so on, we need to consistently and diligently be checking those things that we believe and those things that we receive, those messages. I told you in the past, I used to flip on, um, what's it called? The really bad teaching station, TBS or something, TBN or something like that. Uh, where there's a lot of false doctrine. Not everybody on there is bad, uh, but there's a lot of bad people on there. And I used to turn it on just to watch it to get mad or something. I don't know. Or what it was. I don't like that guy. Or, that teaching's wrong. You know, they're going to get their kind of thing. But what I began to notice is some of that, those ideas or that, that lingo or those words began to just sort of seep into who I was. And I was like, this, it's dangerous. We need to be on our guard. We need to be diligent about the things we believe, thinking through our conclusions, how we come to this belief system. Why do you believe that? Well, we, uh, every, everybody believes that. Okay, let's, go, let's start again. Let's go back to the Scripture. Why do you believe that? And let the, the Scripture speak into our lives. And then the second thing is what we receive. Because if you just keep getting it in, getting it in, getting it in, getting it in, it's probably going to land. And it's going to have an impact on it. So we want to be really careful in that regard. You remember Paul's commendation of the Bereans in Acts 17. We learn in Acts 17 that Paul went to this little town, a town called Berea, and he began to teach there. And he taught the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. And this was a new teaching to them. Many of them had a background, Judaism and the like. And so there were some familiar things. But this whole, like, Jesus and the work of Jesus and so on, that was new to them, and it was something that they didn't fully understand. They liked it. They received it. But then Paul goes on to tell us that they went and they confirmed his teachings. You know, that guy, he said that Isaiah said. Does anybody remember where Isaiah said? And they went back and they found Isaiah, and he was right. And then he, he quoted, you know, Moses said. So they went back to the writings of Moses. And he quoted Daniel. He went back to the writings. And they went back to their scriptures, in their case, the Old Testament, to see if these things were so. And what always amazes me is that Paul was not offended at all. I can't believe you would have the nerve to question my teaching. Do you know who I am? I'm the guy who's going to write 13 books in the New Testament, maybe more, depending if I wrote Hebrews or not. I, nobody knows or whatever. Rather, they're commended. This is what Luke, the author, wrote. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the, God, the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul was encouraged by them digging into the scripture. As believers... We know that in latter times, the Spirit expressly says some will depart from the faith and go after doctrines of demons. As believers, there's only one way that we can avoid false teaching in our lives, adopting in our lives as a church, like the examples we saw here in 1 Timothy, and that is by giving heed to God's word. Stay in God's word. Compare everything with God's word.
and we'll keep ourselves from being deceived by demons. Amen. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word once again. But we know that we're not uh, as cunning as the evil one. We can't see through his wiles. And so we could easily be led astray if we had no anchor point, if we had no word of God to compare those teachings to. And Lord, we anticipate and we expect that it's probably going to begin, the, the attack against us, so to speak, is going to begin with sort of those small things, just the minor compromises, the minor alterations of what uh, we have been walking in and standing upon as established truth. And so, Lord, afresh, we want to be on our guard. We want to be people of the word. Lord, we want to be led by your spirit in the study of your word. We want to enjoy the fellowship of the saints so that iron can sharpen iron. We're not out there alone with our own thoughts, but, Lord, we're, we're interacting with others and ministering to others and being ministered to by them, and as a result, strengthened and sharpened and equipped for every good work you've called us to. So, Lord, bless this word and apply it, Lord, uh, kind of to the unique circumstances of our lives and our day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.